0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning
1: radio show and podcast
0: featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern
1: and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discussed relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your health care with CMF Curo.
0: Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us again will be Dr. Eustace Fernandez, well-known to regular listeners for his revelations about working in a COVID ICU for the last two years. Today, mercifully, he's going to talk to us about common respiratory problems not called COVID. Chris, why is this such an important topic for our listeners
1: Well, anything Dr. Fernandez has to say is worth listening to. Uh, So that's lesson one. Um, But if you think about it, Tom, if there's anything that we all share in common, what might seem like at times lately anyway, absolutely insurmountable differences among people, we all breathe. Uh, There is no way around that. We all breathe. We all must breathe. In fact, we have to do it about 15 times every minute. And we can only go, for the most part, a few short minutes without breathing, uh, or we'll die. Uh, So breath, let's just say, is universal, um, and, and the organ of breathing are the lungs, or more specifically, the respiratory system, and it's universally critical. Every breath, literally, is a creative event in which oxygen is converted into energy. With every breath It has to be thought of as a gift from God. Hey, And by the way, as a mentor of mine used to say, there's no breath that you'll get. There's no guarantee that you'll get the next one. So that one that you just took, you better enjoy it, might be the last one. (laughs) Uh So so breath uh, and the need to breathe unites us, listeners. It unites us with each other. You could say it unites us with our creator. We all breathe. So we're all very tied to potential problems with breathing. So listeners, take a deep breath and pay attention to this episode.
0: And uh, last year, we covered uh, a book called Every Deep Drawn Breath by another pulmonologist who's in the Catholic Medical Association, Dr. Wes Ely. And that talked about uh, you know revamping the way things are done in the ICU. Here, we're focusing on problems outside the ICU, asthma, coughing. COPD and even cystic fibrosis.
1: Yeah, fascinating stuff that affects millions and millions of people. Almost 25 million people a year alone just with cystic fibrosis. So, fascinating stuff that affects so many
0: people. And if you're keeping score at home, we have an upper and a lower respiratory system. What separates basically your vocal cords? Anything involved in breathing above the vocal cords, that's the upper respiratory infection. Anything below it, like the trachea, you know, your your air tube, your windpipe, the bronchi, the lungs, that's all lower respiratory. So we'll be using those terms, upper and lower. But before we get to our wonderful guest, we have our medical trivia question of the day. The category is air
1: exchange. What else so, could it possibly be?
0: What, what else? It has to be related to the topic somehow. So I found this 1972 study calling through the, the volumes of medical literature in my small den here in which the journal of anatomy looked at 28 adult human beings to see how much surface area is in the average adult lung. So I want to make this visual. It's a multiple choice is a surface area inside your adult lungs closer to the size of a singles tennis court, the 12th green at amen corner at Augusta national golf course, the floor of a cleanly swept and sanitized full-size school bus, a pickleball court, or the smallest American with Disabilities Act compliant bathroom. You're gonna to have to wait till the end of the show to find the answer to that and more here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome to today's special guest interview. We have back with us today, Dr. Eustace Fernandez to talk about common respiratory problems. Uh, Eustace has been on the show many times. He's a graduate of the Ohio State University Medical School. He did his internal medicine residency there and then a fellowship in pulmonology and critical care in Pittsburgh. He now practices at Lutheran Hospital of Indiana, where among other things, he is the medical director of critical care services for Lutheran Health Network, and also the medical director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Clinic. He's also the husband of Anne and father of five. Eustace, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Eustace, we're so happy to have you. Now, I want to clear up something for our listeners right out of the gate. So, Uh, You are or you are not a bioethicist, Uh, and teach pediatrics at Ohio State (laughs) University.
2: Uh, Not guilty of all charges. I am the brother of someone with those attributes, and I'm very proud of him, but I am not him.
1: (laughs) And we are proud that you could join us, and we're also happy to to have your brother, Ashley Fernandez, on uh, from time to time as well. Well, let's begin by telling us really what led you uh, to decide on focusing on caring for patients who had lung disease and how's that decision to tied for, I mean, excuse me, how was that decision tied in some way to caring really for the sickest of sick patients in intensive care units?
2: Well, I would say that there are three or four reasons why I became interested in this. Uh, the first are um, pretty humanistic. So so my dad was a general internist in solo practice for a long time. Uh-huh. And I'd get dragged along on rounds with him and I would see him interact with people. So I knew I wasn't going to be a guy who didn't interact one-on-one with patients and build relationships. So I knew that was one component. I had an older brother who's uh, eight years older than me, my brother Carl, who is also a pulmonologist. And Mm -hmm. I swore going through my medical training, I wasn't (laughs) going to do what he did because I didn't want to be seen as a follower. But then the more and more I heard uh, what he did on a day-to-day basis and how interesting it was in terms of subject material, uh, the more I wanted to become engaged in that field, and and lastly, it's the idea of mentorship. You know, um, when I encountered pulmonologists in my training at the Ohio State University, they were kind, smart. They knew something about everything. They were <laughs> good with their hands, and I thought, Gosh, I want to be like that when I grow up. Mm. And and then it was a done deal.
1: Well, now you say when I grow up, but, you know, in reality, where were you in life where it was clear to you that you were going into medicine?
2: Well, my mom, um, when we were really little, she (laughs) she used to give us our nighttime blessing and she would say, make him a good boy, a tall boy and a doctor. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and so mom, if you the three ain't bad, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it was sort of like that desire uh, oh. to serve the way my dad served mm. that made me uh, solidified early on my desire to, to, to help others in that, in that particular way.
0: So Eustace, we are a Catholic show, so we get to do stuff that regular medical shows wouldn't do. Like this. In Genesis 2-7, it says, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so he became a living soul. So the Bible speaks about breath often, even as a metaphor for the third person of the Holy Trinity. So, as a Catholic pulmonologist, what are some of your favorite Bible passages that deal with the breath and breathing?
2: Well, um, you know, also because this is a Catholic show, I'm not going to be able to quote you scripture. Uh, verse. <laughs> Chapter and verse, it's going to be like, you remember that one time when Jesus uh, appeared uh, to um, his apostles after the resurrection?
0: But, but but Eustace, this is like the book of Hebrews, because a couple times in there it says, somewhere in the Bible it says, exactly. so whoever wrote Hebrews actually does that.
2: Exactly. So I'm in good company. <laughs> yes, you with, are. With whoever wrote Hebrews.
0: Whoever did. <laughs>
2: but but um, the breathing of the Holy Spirit upon Uh, the 12 apostles has always been very, very special to me, partially because in my prayer life, I ask for the wisdom of the Holy spirit to descend on me before I start rounding, particularly in the ICUs, particularly in the era of COVID. And, and so, so, you know, I need that help. Also, you know, when I think about, uh, Christ giving up his breath from the cross, and and uh, that's always been an important passage to me. It's just a line. He gave up his spirit, and and in my meditation on that, I think of him breathing his last, and and when I see that, and when I meditate on that, I think about the suffering of of my patients and how how difficult what a psychological anxiety is associated with not being able to breathe, and how unique that particular suffering is, and. You know, I've sat with patients time and time again, and that is the greatest fear. The greatest suffering they have is the fear of not being able to breathe. And so it, it stirs, it stirs my heart.
1: Wow. Now, I mean, along those lines, what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions that we have about, about breath and about breathing and how the lungs work in general?
2: Well, I think that the most common misconception I get is that it's all about the lungs because we are a fully integrated human person. So to have breath, one must have many different things. So a functional brain, um, a, uh, a windpipe um, that the air passes through,
1: hmm.
2: lungs that expand, a diaphragm that contracts and drops down to fill the lungs with air, chest wall muscles that open. Uh, the thoracic cage to allow the lungs to expand, um, and a a heart that continuously uh, pumps blood to the lungs. So any disruption, when I meet patients who are short of breath, I say, look, any of these disruptions can make you have the sensation of being short of breath. And just because the lungs are normal doesn't mean that you're not short of breath. The other analogy or the other common misconception is that just because my oxygen level, you know, everybody has a pulse oximeter these days, just because <laughs> my oxygen level is 98%, it doesn't mean that you're not short of breath. And I use the uh, analogy of, you know, if, uh, if Olympian uh, Carl Lewis and I were to run a race, um, we both maybe could complete it but he might get there a lot faster his muscles wouldn't be as fatigued and the ease with which his body performs that task might just might be a, a little bit less strenuous than mine so so that number is just a number and it's reassuring but it doesn't mean that the person's not short of breath and doesn't have a problem that we have to deal
1: with now you know we love our words in medicine but to play word police a little bit and i say this because i had a discussion with a parent of mine recently who said, I'm struggling to breathe. And I said, be careful what you say to your doctor. You you can't say that because we hear shortness of breath. And to a doctor, shortness of breath has a very specific meaning. This person meant to say, my nose is stuffed up. I'm struggling to breathe through my nose, which is not shortness of breath at all, is it? No. But when you say shortness of breath for our listeners, what do you mean exactly?
2: So it is a processing in the higher parts of the brain of one of those areas not working well, of the lungs not working well, of the bronchial tubes being spasmed, of fluid filling the lung, of the diaphragm muscle not working, or of those muscles that we rely on to control chest wall movement not working. So it is the higher brain saying, this something's wrong, something's Mm -hmm. not working.
1: So it's a subjective feeling of needing oxygen, you might Uh, say.
2: Of needing oxygen, or you know, uh, air hunger, mm. or um, or an unmet need to perform the task that the body is being asked to do. Sure.
0: So, if someone is experiencing shortness of breath, Eustace, when is it time to see somebody?
2: I usually use a couple things. Number one, I do an inventory of activities of daily living with the individual. So I say. Um, are you limited in your capacity to do what you were doing six months ago? Are you able to do simple things like get dressed in the morning, uh, take a shower, um, uh, walk to your car, or walk to get the mail without difficulty? And if if there's a couple sitting in my office, the patient usually says, "Nah, none of that stuff is a problem," and the husband or wife who dragged their spouse there will say, now, hang on a minute. And then things turn in, can, you know, devolve very quickly into a domestic dispute. But then, <laughs> but, but it, it, it is a good point that, you know, it's important to bring someone with you to these appointments because they see things about us as mm-hmm. the, they see things about the patient that the patient themselves has very poor insight into. Um, so day-to-day activities, um, interruptions of those, that's time to see a doctor. And you may just start with your primary care doctor, because we've got a lot of good primary care doctors who, who know the patients intimately. Um, So our our other friend, Andrew Mullally might be a good starting point. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and there are many different ways uh, to approach it. The other thing that I look for, time to see a doctor if a respiratory symptom is associated with something else, something more related to the whole body, like fevers that don't go away, sudden or unexpected weight loss, um, disruption of sleep. Those are, are, are three big things that I always uh, talk to my patients about, or accompanying pain complaints in the joints um, or in the muscle groups.
0: Those are really helpful and practical, but you know, perhaps the most common respiratory complaint I hear of is coughing. Mm. Tell us all about coughing. Where does it come from? When's it a problem? When's it good? Et cetera, et cetera.
2: Well, it's the worst complaint that a pulmonologist hears. It's the chronic. Oh, is it
0: the low back pain of pulmonology? It is. It's the,
2: it's, it's <laughs> the itchy rash, <laughs> the itchy rash, the fibromyalgia, the, uh, of, of pulmonology. I, I've had patients Come to me and say, "Um, Doc, I have um, had a cough for forty years. (laughs) I've been to the Mayo Clinic twice. I've been to the Cleveland (laughs) Clinic twice, and I'm really hoping that you'll be able to make this cough go away. And I just want to, you know, tear my hair out. But (laughs) but I do the best I can, and sometimes we can help folks. But uh, coughs are good, right? So God gave us a cough reflex, and we call it a protective reflex, so that if you know, a little kid swallows a marble, um, he has capacity to expel that. On the other end, towards the end of life, let's just say we have a patient with, with uh, severe Parkinson's disease, and that cough reflex becomes diminished over time, they're at risk that when they're eating something or drinking something, it may not go down the right way and may end up in the lung causing pneumonia. So a cough is a very beneficial thing to have, and an intact cough is, is, a, is a great blessing. Now, there are coughs that are signs of something else. Um, So an extreme example might be that someone coughs, and every time they cough, it produces blood. So that might raise the concern of, does my patient have tuberculosis, or is there a lung cancer hiding somewhere? On the other hand, there is a cough that produces no other symptoms other than just cough. And that is a kind of socially disruptive cough. It is a cough that uh, interrupts capacity sometimes to speak for long periods of time. And that is kind of the trickiest one. And, and, you know, we really talk about a chronic cough as anything that has a greater than two to four week duration. The three most common causes of chronic cough are asthma, asthma which is a tightening of the bronchial tubes, which is highly reversible with the right medications. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is where acid from the esophagus or stomach ends up entering the lungs in very small capacity uh, or may just hit the vocal cords and irritate them enough to stimulate a cough. And the last is postnasal drip, where one has nasal congestion and it, uh, and the drainage goes to the back of the throat and either enters the lung or, again, irritates the voice box and makes you cough. Now, the interesting thing is that if you, if you talk about patients who have a chronic cough, they usually have one or more of those conditions. So mm-hmm. they might have asthma and reflux, or they might have postnasal drip and asthma, um, or some combination of those. So you usually end up, when approached with chronic cough, end up treating multiple things. And, and the complaint I get sometimes from my patients is doc, you know, you keep throwing medicines at me and not pulling any of them back. And then we have to, you know, talk about those, you know, what are they called? Venn diagrams, the overlapping circle thing.
0: <laughs> yes. And, yes. Uh,
2: and, uh, and, and I have so many pieces of paper in my office with that same Venn diagram. Um, I've gotten pretty good at it, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, chronic cough is complex, and it, as a pulmonologist, it's a it's an important thing that we see in our clinic.
1: Now, you know, I know the moms listening are wondering why is the pharmacy full of cough suppressants if a cough is a good thing? And when is it a bad thing to try to suppress my cough with a medicine as opposed to me just allowing it to happen because this guy on the radio says it's a good thing?
2: <laughs> right, right, because a uh, a cough is a valuable thing to have. Um, in this day and age, in the last two years, it's been very more than socially embarrassing to cough in public. It's it can, you can be it can be downright dangerous to your personal safety to cough in public. But <laughs> but um, I think generally, what I tell my patients is that coughs are good, and to cough things out because just getting whatever is down in the lung out of your body is always going to be a good thing. Hmm. I encourage cough suppressants really just in one occasion, um, one or two occasions. One is when it's disruptive to sleep, because sleep is so important to the way the body functions that if you have a cough that's keeping you up all night, I usually will encourage my patients to take something to help them sleep at night. Um, The other is a rare condition uh, called cough syncope, where someone Uh uh, has you know, sudden onset of violent coughing and they pass out.
1: Wow. I could see that would be a problem. Yes.
2: Yes. yes.
1: So moving on to another symptom (laughs) that that you referenced uh, earlier, you said, you know, wheezing as a common uh, respiratory symptom. What does it really mean to wheeze? um, And what should we know about that?
2: So, wheezing is caused by a couple things. Wheezing is usually caused by constriction of the bronchial tubes, which are, you know, the tiniest airways, and turbulent flow through those airways. So, turbulent flow, normally we have nice laminar flow through the airways, but you get turbulent flow when those airways are tight and when there is uh, mucus or some form of inflammation within the airway, and that generates a wheezing noise. But something we... Uh, always say as pulmonologists, is not everything that wheezes is asthma because that <laughs> is clearly the most common cause of wheezing, but not everything that wheezes is asthma. So, uh, for example, um, you know, someone who has a tumor of the upper airway might wheeze. Um, so, that's actually a fixed obstruction in the airway that's making them wheeze. It could be something like a foreign body aspiration. So there, is a, uh, there was a woman that I did a bronchoscopy on who could not stop wheezing, and I ended up finding a chunk of beef in her <laughs> lung. And she said, afterwards, we were talking about it, and she said, that, uh, that, uh, that did remind me that I did have uh, a big bowl of stew a couple weeks ago, and this cough started right after it. <laughs> so and then there are more chronic conditions that can make people wheeze. So filling of the lungs with fluid, which we call congestive heart failure, um, can make a patient wheeze. So there are a couple different things, and it's really important. We call it the differential diagnosis to generate this list in the brain of things that are common and potentially fatal that might cause the patient's symptoms. So someone much smarter than me once told me, Eustace, you're only responsible for things that are common and things that are potentially fatal. So if you go through your list, and you got <laughs> all those things on there, you're in good shape. And, and I found that to be a very helpful clinical tool to me. But it's it's always a mistake to go to the most common thing and say, okay, well, this must be asthma. Hmm. You got you to gotta look on it under every rock for the patient.
1: Now, speaking of asthma, you know you said all things that wheeze are not asthma, but we know asthma is is very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, some would say affects you know upwards of twenty five million Americans. What is asthma? Because wheezing and, and asthma are not the same thing, right? What What is asthma, uh, and what does it involve in the respiratory system? So
2: that's a really good question. So the first thing I should say is that asthma affects a bunch of people like you mentioned, but there are new onset cases of asthma in every decade of life. Mm. So I'll sit with an 80 year old in my office who is a new onset asthma. And they'll say for the previous 79 years of my life, I didn't have asthma. And you're telling me I have asthma now. (laughs) And I say, yes, you do. Um, but asthma is a disease of the bronchial tree and it has a couple different hallmarks. Number one is that you have that obstruction of the airflow. So at the level of the bronchial tubes, the airways are tight and they're spasmed. The muscles that line those airways are spasmed. The second thing uh, about asthma that distinguishes it from other diseases is that by definition, it is 100% reversible. So someone with asthma, if they're on appropriate treatment in 2022, should have reversal of symptoms. And the third thing about it um, is that there is a uh, is a sort of trigger diary that I ask my patients to keep because I always want to know like what makes this worse. For some patients, it's cold weather. Some patients, mm-hmm. it's humid weather. Some patients, it's perfumes. Some patients, it's cologne. Some patients, it's emotional stress. Uh, sometimes it's a pet, and and so you know, doing that detective work becomes a very important part of our uh, of our interview.
0: And the common question people have is. Are asthma and allergy the same thing? Are they different things? Or is it that overlapping Venn diagram where sometimes yes, sometimes no?
2: It's the second of those two options. So there is a great deal of overlap between people with allergic conditions, you know, um, skin rashes, uh, nasal congestion, seasonal allergies, and asthma. So those are things we always are on the lookout for, Are those, you know, dyads and triads of other conditions.
0: But is the asthma itself ever... Triggered by an allergy in the lung,
2: absolutely. So yeah. I would say that that's a very common trigger, and there are specific now injectable medications that we use in patients who really suffer with asthma that uh, tamp down um, that particular allergic response, and uh, and they've been highly effective in reducing hospitalizations, ER visits, need for uh, steroids, which are you know wonderful when you need them, but the long term trade-offs become very bad after a while and anyone who's ever been on prednisone or or medication like that long term uh, understands that these flare-ups of asthma are very costly to other areas of health you get things like poorly controlled diabetes uh, weight gain mood disturbance insomnia poor wound healing and and a whole host of things
1: well well that seems like a good time to take a deep breath and a break Uh, So stay with us, listeners. We'll be back with Dr. Eustace Fernandez here on Dr. Doctor.
0: We're back with Eustace Fernandez here on Dr. Doctor with more common breath of life related problems. The next one is called COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or commercials for it on TV. What is it, Eustace? How does someone know if they have it?
2: So chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, like asthma, is another obstructive lung disease. So the bronchial tubes are obstructed. But the important thing about it is that there's an actual permanent anatomic change to the lung, and we call that emphysema. It is where the air sacs uh, are destroyed. They lose their elasticity that allows the lung to uh, allow air to enter and expel. Carbon dioxide. So it's in distinction to asthma, it does not have reversibility to it. Mm -hmm. An important thing for our listeners to hear is that is that ninety eight percent or more of patients with COPD have uh, this condition as it relates to tobacco abuse. Uh So Indiana is, I think, second in the nation, maybe behind Tennessee in terms of tobacco use. Uh, Last time I looked at this, and And so if you want to preserve lung health, the number one thing one can do is put down cigarettes if you've ever had um, a problem with cigarettes. And if you have never had a problem with it, don't start. The other things are are, uh, uh, certain occupations, so metal dust exposure, uh, for example, people who work in foundries um, are at increased risk for COPD. And then there is an inherited condition called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, Mm. which can affect... Um, the lungs, the liver, the skin. Those are the three uh, main areas we look at. And so it's a disease that is treated with inhaled medications in much the same way asthma is, but what causes it, um, what its natural history is in terms of reversibility um, are very, very different. And you know, if you have asthma, you just have it, and you got to learn your triggers and things like that, and avoid those. But with COPD, there are certain behavioral things that cause it. So upfront, you can avoid ever getting COPD um, by not letting tobacco smoke into your body.
1: Well, let's so, let's talk about smoking for just a second. I mean, I'll have to admit, I don't see smoking patients anymore. You know, I guess I live in a little bit of a medical bubble in that regard. Um, but you're right, Indiana is a is a tobacco using state. Help us see smoking through somewhat of a Catholic lens. How do you talk to patients about that and make them think about that in a way that might help them stop?
2: So I have a standard spiel about this because so many of my patients come to me and there's so much shame associated with coming to see your lung doctor and telling them you're still smoking. Uh, and sure. so, so many of them have been yelled at uh, by healthcare providers, family members, whomever. Mm. So I, I think that As a Catholic doctor, I I try and meet them with mercy. So I tell them that most people who try to stop smoking and fail, I mean, and and are ultimately successful, have failed at least somewhere between six to nine times. (laughs) So the fact that they have tried and failed doesn't mean that they shouldn't get up and try again, which I think is very Catholic. Um, The other thing I tell them is that, okay, smoking isn't the problem. The event in your life or the situation in your life that causes you to smoke is the thing that's the problem. So we have to go back and figure out what that is. We have to try and address it. And until you address it, you're not going to be successful. So sometimes it's a stressful work situation. Uh, sometimes it is a family member and those two things are really hard to get rid of. Uh, (laughs) uh, but sometimes it's, you know, I just, um, need something to do with my hands. And I've had, Mm. I've had men take up knitting to avoid smoking. I've had, women um, find something else to do with their hands while they're having their cup of coffee and, and eating their breakfast. Um, there are loads of ways you can help patients without condemning them. And then I tell my patients, and, and I get very strange looks sometimes, I tell them pray for deliverance. Mm-hmm. Because of the many things, many of the vices we have in our lives, um, we can't defeat them on our own. So pray for deliverance. And, and some people kind of look at me like that's a, a, a crazy thought, but I don't really care. And,
0: and it, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Eustace, back on, on COPD, I, I found something fascinating. You alluded that you thought, you know, tobacco smoking is the main cause, but there's this map that shows the highest prevalence is along the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. Is it strictly because that's where more people smoke or is there something else to it? Well,
2: I don't know. Um that's an interesting point. It there is without a doubt a lot of uh tobacco abuse that sort of trends along that uh area and a lot of migratory patterns between Kentucky, uh Ohio, Indiana and and it may just be purely tobacco abuse related. Um people have particular inhalational exposures uh, with the sorts of industries that have popped up in these areas. And also, um, you know, the soil fungus histoplasmosis right. uh, may be implicated. Um, but in terms of causing CO- As a causative agent for COPD, I don't know that there's data to support that.
0: And, and then I read... So I'm just the, a dermatologist who doesn't know better. That emphysema and chronic bronchitis together make up COPD. Are they the same? Are they related? Are they separate? So
2: emphysema, I think of as the actual disturbance of the anatomy within the lung. So okay. by that, I mean the destruction of the lung. So if a patient has a lung surgery and it's removed, and we look at it under the microscope, we can say these air sacs are larger than they should be. They're floppier than they should be. They're negatively impacted by tobacco smoke. And that's what emphysema is. Chronic bronchitis is a, is a symptom. So it, it is... Uh, Breathlessness, wheezing, mucus production, Mm. and that triad together usually um, helps us make the diagnosis of uh, chronic bronchitis. So there are very few patients who just have one of those things.
0: Where does the mucus come from?
2: The mucus comes from inflammation within the airways. So the lungs are a very immune rich environment. And when they're insulted by an infection or tobacco smoke or whatever, um, the, the immune system, these T cells get turned on and there's chronic inflammation within the lung. And that's what causes mucus production. It's a mixture of bacterial uh, that, that have been entrapped and destroyed, um, inflama- uh, inflammatory cells. And you have all of these cells that line the airways that, that make mucus in response to that.
1: So let's let's move on to a different topic that um, that is so important, and that is, and we throw the word around, URI's upper respiratory tract infections. What is a URI, and what does that really mean? What do we do about it?
2: So some people might say what you do about it is nothing. I mean, (laughs) you know, the vast majority of URIs are, are viral in nature. So there are things we breathe in, we're exposed to at work, they pass in respiratory droplets, and our immune system is usually competent to handle them. Now, in my patient population, um, a URI has a high risk of becoming a LRI, which is a lower respiratory tract infection. And that can wind one of my patients with COPD or asthma or pulmonary fibrosis in the hospital. It may wind them up on a ventilator, etc. cetera. Mm. So, you know, any of my patients with symptoms of cough, fever, abnormal amounts of mucus production, uh, they, I usually ask them to call me. So what does that mean? So that means that most of my patients cough things up on a regular basis. So what I ask them is, are you coughing up more? Mm -hmm. Is it, uh, has it changed in color or character? Has it become, uh, thicker? Has it become bloody? And those are things that really get my attention because the, the age old question is like, do I need an antibiotic or not? Mm -hmm. And, and many patients feel, Uh, feel really bad if they leave the office without an an antibiotic and they feel like the doctor did nothing for me. But we have to be good stewards of these antibiotics because if we keep using them over and over and over again, we will not have ones that work uh, against these highly resistant bacteria.
1: Well, yeah. Eustace, I had a patient recently angry at me and she said, oh, you're one of those new doctors that doesn't want to give antibiotics for (laughs) anybody. Um, but, but run the list for us on a couple of key things that would tell a patient yep yeah, you need an antibiotic
2: So I think fever of more than you know four or five d- uh, days duration
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think changes in the mucus or signs or symptoms that this is passed into the chest so um, so someone who starts out with just a cough uh, maybe, even emanating from a sinus pressure or sinus, and, uh, sinus infection, and then starts to feel it in their chest and uh, maybe develops pain in the chest or uh, pain when they're taking a deep breath in. So mm-hmm. that in and of itself, those are warning signs that they might need an antibiotic. It doesn't mean they definitely need an antibiotic, but it means they should sit with their doctor uh, or nurse practitioner or PA or whoever sees them maybe get a chest x-ray to make sure that they don't have a pneumonia, which is a lower respiratory tract infection, and also to make sure nothing else is going on. So I've unfortunately seen many patients who have an undiagnosed lung cancer who think they have pneumonia. Uh-huh. So again, common things, things that can kill you, pneumonia and lung cancer, unfortunately, fall into both of those categories. So it's, it's important. Uh, nobody likes going to the doctor. I don't like going to the doctor. But sometimes you have to, and you have to have them lay hands on you, listen to your chest, um, and then maybe go take a picture of your chest and make sure that everything's okay.
0: So Eustace, what has to be present for you to actually give somebody an antibiotic for a strict upper respiratory infection?
2: Well, a lot of it has to do with the longitudinal relationship I have with the patient. So what if
0: it's somebody that doesn't have a chronic lung problem like your patients do?
2: Right. So in those cases it I usually require uh, a couple things. Number one is duration of symptoms. So someone who's been sick for two days, I'm not going to give an antibiotic. Um, I also have to examine them um, closely. listen to their chest, look up into their nasal passages and see if I see um, clear drainage or if it's uh, nasty infected looking stuff. Look in their ears, um put my hands on their on their sinuses. In, at the front of the forehead and over what's called the maxillary area, which is right over the cheekbones. And, and, and those things can raise my suspicion that maybe this patient needs an antibiotic. And then you step back for a second and look at the whole person and say, how sick does this person look to me? Do they look what we would describe as toxic? And how worried am I that this patient, based on their symptoms, the duration of symptoms, what I'm finding with my ex- exam, how, how likely is it there that they were, are going to progress to something more serious?
0: And how about you know, the color of mucus green? Does green mean bacteria? Or is that a myth? That's a myth.
2: That's Thank a you. myth. That's a myth. <laughs> I mean, it can, you know, you can, I, I've had people bring me samples of things that are all, oh, no. all the colors of the rainbow. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the only color that bothers me is red because red. it's usually blood. Uh-huh. Um, but, um,
1: but, you know, right. if, we have, uh, if we have would-be medical students or medical students listening, I feel like they should sort of rewind your last answer and commit that to memory. I mean, I feel like we're interviewing Dr. Osler himself, Tom. I mean, <laughs> but, but your answer was, I have to see somebody. I have to touch them. I've got to look at them. And I, I've got to put my hands on them. No MRIs or PET scans or really any technology at all other than maybe a stethoscope, right? Um, but right. that's almost romantic listening to that description
2: well I'm uh, I'm an old romantic as you guys know yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but there is so much that can be learned just from listening to patients yeah. most of the time they will tell you what's wrong with them hmm. and then putting your hands on them and listening to them um, it it reminds us and them that we're all part of the same you know, the same team. We're part of this this human race created in the image and likeness of God and things are supposed to look sound a certain way by design, not by Beyond
1: Beyond the philosophy, it's good medicine and it doesn't really matter what specialty you're in. We need to see you and we need to look at you and touch you and do a physical examination and take a thorough medical history to find out what's wrong. That can get lost in these days of, you know, highbrow talks of technology.
2: Right. I had a, a very cringeworthy moment where uh, a medical student uh, told me, I sent her off to see a patient, and she said, I'm going to do a computer biopsy first.
0: <laughs> and,
2: and I had never heard this term. And she, I said, what's that? And she said, I'm going to go through and and look in the computer and get all the records and and, and look at yeah. everything first. And, and I said over my dead body. uh, You go see that patient, you talk to them, you get their story. Yes. And, uh, and, um, figure out. It's funny
1: hearing you say that because I've had learners with me commonly and, I mean, we digress a bit, but I think it's, it's noteworthy where they, they, feel as though they need to have the answer before they go see the patient. So they do the computer biopsy and, you know, they'll say, I don't, I don't want to go in that room and see that patient because I don't know anything about fill in the blank, whatever they think that problem is. But in reality, good medicine, you just go in and start asking questions and then come out and describe to your instructor what, what it is that you saw and heard and, uh, and felt. That's been around for hundreds of years and technology has not changed that need a bit.
2: No, and it's the thrilling part of medicine is to just get to know a person mm-hmm. and hear their story and you learn so much from them. It's, it's the most satisfying part of medicine.
0: Eustace, in our last few minutes, I want to cover a topic that's near and dear to your heart. It's the most common genetic condition associated with early mortality, cystic fibrosis. What do we, especially as Catholic listeners, need to know about this?
2: So great question. Cystic fibrosis is a disease of, uh, that is caused by a mutation in a gene called the CFTR uh, gene, and it causes mucus within the lung to be incredibly thick, incredibly inflamed, and leads to many, many different types of infection, which ultimately become terminal through breathlessness. Now this, last time I read about this, this genetic condition has the highest rate of prenatal abortion, even ahead of Down syndrome.
0: Oh my. Yeah. Mm.
2: And, and, but I'm here to tell you that thanks be to God, we have had new treatments, um, in the last few years, uh, an explosion of new treatments that help these patients live longer and better. So there are, uh, treatments, they're all pills that they take that help this CFTR protein to work better, to correct the thing that's defective in it, and to uh, stay in the body longer to help the airways remain healthy. And what I've seen are patients who thought they were never going to have children give birth. I've had a, a uh, young woman who was on a ventilator three years ago with her cystic fibrosis, send me videos of her jumping out of airplanes with parachutes, <laughs> with parachutes. But, um, nice. and, and these are amazing things. These young women in particular were told early on in their childhood, you can never have a baby because of this condition. And we've had this sort of explosion of little babies coming into clinic and it's been unbelievably satisfying. You know, I mean, I
1: mean to, to echo that, just when, as an OBGYN, when I was in medical school, we didn't talk about fertility and cystic fibrosis patients because the sad reality was they didn't live long enough to enjoy their fertility. That's radically different now.
2: Right. And a lot of these patients um, now realize that their condition, which they thought was going to be terminal, hmm. isn't so terminal anymore. So many of them have this challenge what am I going to do with my life? I thought I was going to live to be 35 or 38 and I might live to be 70. Maybe maybe I'll go back and, and, uh, uh, go to college. Many of them have purposefully chosen not to marry because they thought they were not going to be around for much of that marriage. So many of them are going back and looking at these questions again. And it is so deeply satisfying, uh, to see them grow as people and to regain hope and, uh, and, um, and to try and figure out what God's purpose is for their yeah. lives. I
0: mean, how radically has the lifespan changed just since you've been in college?
2: Yeah. So I think um, when I was in college, I think the lifespan was probably in the mid-20s. It's now about 38 or 39. Wow. So it's uh, it's expanded. And, and now in the United States, just to put this in perspective, there are more adults with cystic fibrosis than there are children. Wow. So so they're living longer. They're living better. Um, they're going to college, they're getting jobs. They're doing all sorts of, of really fulfilling things. Most, uh, you know, most importantly, they're getting married, they're having children. Um, and they're, um, they're taking a real joy in life.
0: Eustace, if somebody wants to learn more about problems with breathing problem with their lungs, where would you send them?
2: So I would send them to my office because I have five children and I need to keep working. <laughs> but if, if they're not local, um, you know, uh, I, I have found, I have found uh, your alma mater, the Mayo Clinic's uh, website, um, where you, you know, can look up a disease and read in lay person's terms, the the description of the disease and what to do about it and what to... I found those to be incredibly helpful. Yes. Um, so I think the Mayo Clinic is probably uh, the the best online resource out there. Um, The Cleveland Clinic also has some very good informative um, uh, pages.
1: Well, Eustace, it's been great talking with you. What final thoughts from a pulmonary perspective can you share with our listeners?
2: Well, what I can tell you is that the lungs are one of the most exposed, maybe after the skin, organs in the human body. Uh, They're exposed to everything that you breathe in. So my, my final word would be, be careful what you breathe in. <laughs> take, take, care, take care of the lungs that God's given you. Fortunately, he's blessed all of us with two, uh, mm. but we, it's the only set we've got. So um, breathe in clean air, exercise, take care of uh, what you put in your body nutritionally, and don't inhale things that are bad for them: Smoke, marijuana, vaping, all of that stuff, which we could do an entire other show about, but be a good steward of it, just like the rest of your
1: body. Well, Eustace, thank you so much. Patients are lucky to have you. We're lucky to have you. You're so much more charming than your brother. And, uh, <laughs> we, we hope to have you back again on Dr. Doctor, Doctor soon. Thank you.
2: My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. See you guys.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer of this episode's medical trivia question on what else but air exchange, Tom.
0: Yeah. A 1972 study looked at 28 adult human beings. It was published in the Journal of Anatomy to answer the simple question, how much surface area is in the average adult lung? So you got the multiple choice question. Is it closer to the surface area of a singles tennis court, the 12th green at Amen Corner at Augusta National, the floor of a full-size school bus minus everything that's on that floor, a pickleball court, or the smallest ADA compliant bathroom?
1: And the answer is my favorite new sport. Pickleball. A pickleball court.
0: So, and that's about 880 square feet is a pickleball court. And in that study, they found a range of about 500 to 1,000 square feet, with the average being about 861 square feet. So now you know your lungs have about the surface area of a pickleball court. Chris, I mean, yeah, pickleball.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say, imagine what we're talking about there is if you took your lungs and laid them out flat, it would cover a pickleball court. That's a huge amount of space. But we're not Um,
0: recommending that you do that.
1: No, that would not be optimal to do that. Even if you Um, are professionals. But it does show just how important those two organs are in your chest. Yes. And Chris, our
0: top three takeaways from Eustace's uh, cornucopia of practical tips.
1: Yeah. As always with Eustace, picking three things out of the things that he said is challenging because he's just so good. But I really liked um, one of the things he said that a cough is a good thing to have. It's something to be be happy that we have because it gets bad stuff out of the body. Uh, And he went on to say suppressing a cough, maybe really if it's just keeping you awake at night, uh, was one of the more common reasons to suppress it. But in general, it's a natural response and it's doing something that's worth doing. Um, I really liked, and it's hard not to like, I guess, smoking is a horrible thing. I think It's easy to forget about smoking uh, until someone like Eustace points out that our own state of Indiana has a very high rate of smoking. We're seeing vaping a lot now in teenagers. It's all bad. Don't breathe anything in other than clean air. It's bad for you. Stop doing it. And I really liked where he said, pray for deliverance because that's an addiction. Um, And God can deliver you from that as he can do anything. All things are possible. So use that tool. And then my last but really favorite thing that he said, this this won't surprise you, it was his Osler-esque description um, of how to encounter a patient, and in this case, a patient with a pulmonary complaint. Uh, but just that image of sitting next to a patient, taking a medical history, touching them, listening to them, observing the color of their skin, the color of their nails, listening to them with a stethoscope, um, that really evokes... Um, a, a romantic vision of medicine. But it's not just old-fashioned romantic. That's real medicine. And it's, it's part of the, the beauty of medicine. And it's why we do it.
0: Those are three great takeaways. Yeah, I, I think I like the cough one the best as far as being something practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, yeah, if I'm at work and coughing, I probably shouldn't be there. You, you know, is that going to change after this pandemic for you, Chris? Are you less likely to work through illness?
1: You know, everything has changed now. You know, if you sneeze in public, you feel as though everyone's going to point at you and say, unclean, and you'll have to leave the restaurant or something. Um, But I I think we have learned something about not just working and coughing and sneezing. And uh, whereas before we would have been tempted to just do it, maybe our sensibilities are a little different now.
0: Well, thank you for informing your sensibilities by listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast the catholic medical association we ask you to share the good news of dr. doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app
1: and we ask you to keep listening to dr. doctor you can find this and all of our episodes on our website dr. Doctor.org. and for those of you that may want to dive a little deeper into some of these topics check out our website it has all of our links it has back information on our guests the papers they've written the books they recommend all sorts of information for you This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official
0: radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions through the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.